0: Great job! Thank you all very, very much, very much. I want to begin our message today uh, with a prayer together, and this is a very special prayer. It's called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer, and it was written and it was said daily by the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley. Uh, so the words are on the screen, and I invite us to say this prayer together. I am no longer my own, but yours put me to what you will place me with whom you will put me to doing put me to suffering let me be put to work for you or set aside for you praised for you or criticized for you let me be full let me be empty let me have all things let me have nothing I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. So I take you back to June 10th of this year. It was a Sunday morning, and I had just been commissioned as a provisional elder the day before at the Florida United Methodist Annual Conference. It was one of the best days of my life. But on June 10th, that Sunday, Pastor Tom left at 12.15 p.m. for his 10-week renewal leave and hasn't been back since. And he told y'all that you were stuck with me for the next 10 weeks, and believe it or not, we've made it to week 10. So, Pastor Tom returns next week and will be back in the pulpit sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with us, and I'm excited for that. <laughs> but I began reflecting on the journey we've been on the last 10 weeks together and asked myself, what was I really trying to teach and get across these past many weeks we've been together? When we embarked on this New Testament in 90 days challenge, what did I hope would happen? What did I really hope to share with each of you this summer? And as I thought about it, my heart continued to run back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And for many years now in college and all throughout seminary, I've been asking myself some questions Who is my neighbor? What does it really mean to love my neighbor as much as I love Jesus? Or is what I'm doing right now in this very moment matter to my neighbor, or does it matter to God? Who am I really living my life for? And as we've journeyed these past 10 weeks together, I think I have actually come up with some answers to those questions. Uh, And where I originally thought about beginning this journey is where we'll end it today with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we've prepared a little skit or a drama of sorts to help us tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And so there'll be a few cues for you uh, whenever you hear this sound. I'll invite you to close your eyes. And then, when you hear this sound again, open your eyes. And so, every time you hear this sound, if your eyes are open, close them. If your eyes are closed, open them. Are we ready? Let's
1: begin. Close your eyes. Just then, a religion scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? He answered, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said, that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it, and you'll live. Looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define a neighbor? Open your eyes.
0: This story starts off great. A religious scholar and a teach asked Jesus a very honest question. He says, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? What do I need to do? And that's a question I think We've all asked ourselves at one point or another, we want to know what we need to do to get into heaven, to live an eternal life with our Creator. But Jesus does what Jesus does best, and He answers a question with a question. And of course, the religious scholar who spent his entire life studying the law of God and knows the answer to the question before he even asks it. Uh, Of course, he answers it beautifully and correctly and so much so that Jesus even says, great job, you got the answer. But instead of just being done and moving on and doing what Jesus says, he has to look for a loophole because he knew the answer to his question. That's why he asked Jesus, because he was hoping Jesus might give a different answer. He didn't like the answer that Jesus knew he was going to give, and he was hoping Jesus might offer something different to him, something easier. And he asked, well, who is my neighbor then? Uh Uh-oh. Now he's opened the can of worms. Now the real teaching can begin. Now we get the real point of this story, and ignorance is no longer an option because Jesus is going to answer the question. And this question and this conversation that they're having in this parable uh, is pretty world-shaking for that time period. You think in our time right now, we're more connected than we've ever been in the history of the world. In just a few moments, I can send a text or FaceTime or email my, uh, one of my closest friends who's serving as a missionary in Japan across the globe. And I can talk to him on a daily basis for free. But you have to remember, for most of human history, it would take weeks or months or perhaps even years until messages could be communicated and conversations could be had. The world was a lot smaller back then. And so when Jesus asked that question, well, who is your neighbor? The person, uh, probably a Jew would have said, well, it's the person a few to my right or a few to my left. Maybe the person or two I know in my hometown. But that's the tricky question that Jesus asks. You see, the more we learn in our lives, the more questions we have. And then, the more questions we have, the more we learn. Jesus had a pretty good strategy for teaching. So, who does Jesus say our neighbor is?
1: Close your eyes. Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Then a Levite remi- le- religious man showed up, but he also avoided the injured man. Open your eyes.
0: If Jesus were telling this story to us today, I think it sound a little something like this. A Methodist pastor was walking down the road and ignored an injured man because he was in a hurry to get to a meeting at the church. In part two, it sounds something like a church member, a committee leader, was in a hurry to get to the church for an important meeting with the pastor and walked by the injured man on the side of the road in need of help. Sound a little more convincing? You see, understanding the context of this story is critical for our understanding. Firstly, we already mentioned that the person asking the question was a religious scholar. He knew the answer, and he was hoping to find a loophole. But it wasn't until a few days ago I finally asked myself the question, why? Why was he looking for a loophole if he knew the answer? And I don't know if we say this enough. Loving your neighbor is really hard sometimes especially a neighbor that you don't know or especially a neighbor that has hurt you or hurt somebody that you love. Loving your neighbor is not an easy task all the time. And up until this point in the story, I think the listeners that were listening to Jesus would have uh, probably felt a little bit of guilt or remorse as they probably have seen this before in their lives and they would have understood But what Jesus does next really turns the story on its head. You see, in those days, uh, the the people that were listening to the story were Jewish, and Jesus then talks about the Samaritan. And in those days, the Samaritan was considered the other, or the outcast, or less than, not to be associated with, with religious people like the Jews listening to Jesus. But you see, we know this story. We know what's coming next after this scene is done. The Good Samaritan is just a few hundred yards down the road, and he's going to come, and he's going to save the day, and we're going to feel so good about it. The Good Samaritan came, and we get a nice, happy ending to our story. But see, in Jesus' day, that would have been a despicable story. A terrible ending. When Jesus even mentioned the word Samaritan, people would have turned their head or stopped listening because it was just that absurd that they would help or be associated with the Samaritan, much less the Samaritan being the hero in the story. It was an outrageous claim that Jesus made.
1: But what really happened? Close your eyes a Samaritan traveling the road came on him. When he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. Then he lifted him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take good care of him. If it costs any more, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. What do you think? Which of the three became a neighbor to the man attacked by robbers? Well, the one who treated him kindly The religion scholar responded. Jesus said, go and do the same. Open your eyes. Close your eyes.
0: It's been a pretty awesome summer, worshiping with all of you each week and having the privilege to share in leadership with our incredible church staff and how many of you have volunteered and helped and made this summer what it was for worship for so many. And this summer is something that I know I'll remember for the rest of my life. And the only way I can think to describe it is to say how blessed and how lucky I feel that we've been on this journey together. How lucky I feel that I was sent here Of the 600 United Methodist Churches in Florida, somehow I wound up here for this point in time. And I think that God had a plan. I think all of this happened for a reason. And I want to end today's sermon by sharing something with you that's incredibly important to me. Uh, Browen has created a card for us that will be handed out in just a few moments. And it's got on one side that Wesleyan covenant prayer that we said at the beginning of the service. And on the other side, it's got what's called the general rules, the general rules for Christians. And they also were written by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement who wrote that prayer. And I want you to take that card with you and put it in your wallet or in your car or someplace where you'll see it and be reminded of those, these rules and take time to say that prayer on a daily basis You see, I do my best every day to live by these rules and to say this prayer on my good days, on the worst days, and everything in between, this prayer and these disciplines sustain me. You see, the story of the Good Samaritan does have so many great things to teach us, but the most important lesson we can learn from it is this, just because we know what is right doesn't mean that we're actually going to do it. You see, it takes more than just a nice moral story to make us good Samaritans. There has to be change in our hearts, in our spirits, if we actually want to become the type of Christians we all so desperately want to be. You see, I don't know about you, but I'm spiritually tired and emotionally exhausted when i look around our country and our globe each day we watch the news we read the paper we get it sent it right to our smartphones and all we read is bad 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 and worse and if the news can't find something bad to talk about here in our town they'll tell us something bad happening in florida or somewhere else in the united states it's the same thing over and over again and growing up I was told, don't worry, you don't have to solve the crisis of the day every day. There are a lot of good people out there working hard to make the world a better place. But to me, it sounds more like the crisis of the hour now. There are so many people in need of help. There are so many people in need of a good Samaritan. But who is going to be those good Samaritans? For years now, we've read about how churches around the country are shutting their doors for good, how pastors are leaving their vocations in droves, and how millennials are never, ever going to come to church. It's more bad, 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 and worse. And I'm tired of it. You want to know what makes the church great and what it is? Besides the fact that it was created by God and the fact that Jesus is the head of the church and the Holy Spirit works on us with us when we are at our most weak and vulnerable times. What I think makes the church great are the people. The people who wake up every day and pick up their crosses and they choose love. They choose mercy. They choose compassion and forgiveness despite the circumstances. The church should be a place where no one is turned away, where everyone feels welcome, a safe place for people to come and encounter the living God, a place where people can come and know of the love that Jesus Christ has for them, to know of the forgiveness that Jesus has for them, to know that Jesus sacrificed his life for ours so that we can be made into new creations and be given new life so we can live our lives not with guilt and with shame and with sin, but rather with freedom and joy because of what Jesus has already done for us. Today, I want to encourage you, to empower you, and to share with you these three general rules. So I'll go ahead and ask the ushers to begin passing those little cards out, and take one as the basket goes by you, and I'll take just a few moments to explain Uh, what these rules are and why they're so important to us. The first rule is to do no harm. And friends, I think we all know this, and the news has pointed it out recently, but the church is not innocent in doing harm. We've got a lot of baggage as the church, the global church, but that doesn't mean that we should give up or that we shouldn't stand up for what is right and good, even in the face of Of adversity or persecution, whether that's individual or communal. You see, we need to do the good work with love and compassion, not with fear or with malice or trying to just prove that we're right and someone else is wrong. We are to not do any harm in any aspect of our lives. This includes physical harm to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This includes doing no harm to our planet and to God's creation. It includes not doing harm with our words and our mouths, or any other kind of harm you can think of. Whatever just popped into your head, avoid it. We need to avoid harm and evil at all cost, because the reality is evil is everywhere. We don't have to look very far or very hard for it, but we do have to work hard to confront it and defeat it with the power of God's Holy Spirit in us. The second rule is to do good, and what does that mean? Being good and doing good oftentimes can look very different. Good, uh, being good means nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, and responsible. At work on self improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. And I think a lot of us see the main benefit of religion or our faith uh, as teaching people what it means to be good and encouraging them to avoid mean or self-destructive behavior. And that's part of it. But that's not the whole picture. That's not what we learn from the Good Samaritan. You see, being good doesn't get you into heaven. Being good doesn't even make you a Christian. Following the commands and teachings of Jesus make you do good. It isn't always about being good, it's about doing good. And doing good looks like standing up for someone who can't stand for themselves. It looks like giving away some of your hard-earned money to help others who don't have enough. It looks like sharing even when you don't want to. It looks like going out of your comfort zone to allow someone else to have just a little bit. You see, doing good requires action. And the final rule is this, practice the spiritual disciplines, or as I like to say it, stay in love with God. And on the card is a list of different spiritual disciplines that we should attend to or practice on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. The first one is to attend public worship. It's important that we come together as a community, that we are in this space worshiping God together to remind ourselves that we're not on this journey alone, that we are all on the path together as a team. And if you cannot be here physically in worship, don't forget that we have uh, the option to go online and watch a live stream or to follow along on Facebook Live. We have hundreds of people that watch from home or from around the country, even a few from around the globe, every single week. Hey, everyone. So we want everyone to be a part of Worship Weekly, whether here with us in the sanctuary or with us online. The next is to read Scripture, and we are to read it daily. And if you've got a smartphone, I'd encourage you to just download the Bible up, and you can set a a notification to pop up with the verse of the day. What an encouraging thing to do to start your day. Or if you don't want that, then I encourage you to start waking up just three minutes earlier a day. Have your Bible on your nightstand. The alarm clock goes over. Instead of pressing snooze, grab the Bible and just read a few verses. Beginning your day in God's Word will give you a terrific foundation for whatever you encounter the rest of your day. The next is Holy Communion, and this is one we practice together as a congregation the first Sunday of the month. Uh, Communion is so important because it's the main and primary way we can experience God's grace and be reminded of what Jesus did on the cross for each of us. But John Wesley also tells us we should take communion as often as possible, to be reminded of the good gift of God's grace that is given to us because of what He did. Communion is important. The next is prayer, which is incredibly important, but I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to correlate this to the Nike slogan, okay? Just do it. (laughs) Prayer is so important. It is so easy. We have a direct access line to our Creator and God who wants nothing more than to have a relationship with us. Be in prayer with God constantly. The next on the list is fasting, and I put this there to remind you and teach you that fasting doesn't just have to be with food. You can fast from anything that holds you back from being in relationship with God, whether that's your phone or social media or what's on the TV or a hobby. Sometimes you can take a break from that to invest some time in your relationship with God. And the last one is participating in small groups, and that's there to remind us that Christian community is important, and we need to be a part of the body of Christ more than one day a week for one hour. And that doesn't mean you have to be a part of a Bible study. Get a small group of three or four of you and get together for coffee once a week and ask yourselves the question, how is it with my soul? Have someone that you can be honest with your faith about. Otherwise, you're just standing still. You're not growing and becoming a better disciple. So once again, I want to challenge you to take this card with you today and take it everywhere you go. Keep it in your wallet or in your car or your nightstand. And I want to challenge you as we finish this summer in the New Testament in 90 days together, try saying that prayer at least once a day, whether in the morning or the evening, middle of the day, during a stressful time. And do your best to live by these three general rules. And I tied these rules in with this parable to show that the Good Samaritan doesn't just have to be a story in a book from a long, long time ago, but rather to challenge you to make the story of the Good Samaritan your story. My challenge to you is to make this story a reality in your everyday life. The general rules in the Wesleyan covenant prayer are ways to remember Our summer together in the New Testament, perhaps even the core values of the New Testament can be found in these three general rules, and they're tangible ways that we can live our lives to become the best disciples that we can be. So when God sees us, God sees Jesus in us when we live our lives this way. So let's end this time together by saying the Wesley Covenant Prayer again. I am no longer my own, but yours Put me to what you will, place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service, and now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine, and I am yours, so be it, and the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven, amen and amen.